Happy Easter. It's good to have you here. We're uh, thankful that you decided to join us. On Easter, we've had several great services already, but we're looking forward to our time together one more time. And uh, we want to let you know that in a couple of minutes, we're going to be taking the offering. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we just want to be really clear about this. We are just blessed to have you here with us. And uh, we don't want your money. That's not what this is about. But our people love to support the ministry here, and we just don't want to rob them of that opportunity. And so we will be doing that in a couple of minutes. So it was about six weeks ago that uh, my oldest son and I, it was a Friday afternoon, we were home alone, and the rest of the family was out for the evening doing something, and we were on our own for dinner, and so we kind of put our heads together and thought, you know, what do we want to do? And, uh, and I thought of something I hadn't had in quite a while, and I thought, man, I just want to go to Big Lou's for dinner. Anyone been to Big Lou's? Anyone? Big Lou's is awesome. So anyway, so I just, you know how all afternoon I'm just thinking about, oh, barbecue chicken and ribs, and I'm just like totally getting in that zone to where that's the only thing that's going to work for me. The only thing. So finally I told my son, man, it's time to go eat. Let's eat. So we're driving down the whole way. I'm just totally anticipating it. And as we're getting close to Big Lou's, I notice that the open sign is not on. Not on. And I thought, well, maybe Big Lou isn't quite on his game today and he didn't turn the sign on. But as we pulled in the parking lot, I noticed there were no cars there. So we kind of pulled around to the side where everyone sits, and there's nobody in there. And I thought, you know, maybe someone, well, we're trying, so I backed up, and, you know, I'm pulling through the drive-thru. My son's like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe somebody will see us. And, we, you know, we kind of pulled in. We pulled up to the window there. There's nobody there. There's nobody inside. There's no lights on, but I'm just waiting. I'm waiting. I mean, maybe Big Lou will figure out we're there. We're hungry. We want some barbecue, and he'll show up. But we wait there a minute. Two minutes, three minutes, we're just sitting there. It's so pathetic. It's like we have no life at all. And finally, my son looks at me and he's like, Dad, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, you know, I was so focused on this. I wanted it so bad and, it, and nothing else is going to work for me. And uh, finally, he's like, come on, Dad, get a life. Let's go. And we did. We laughed. But it was such a, it was such a sad day. Such a sad day. I don't, I don't know. It, it made me think, though, about how in life um, God has actually blessed me with a lot of really great open doors that I've been able to walk through. I can't walk through the door at Big Lou's anymore. It's kind of sad, but had a, had a lot of great things happen in my life, and, and it made me think about some of the things I'm really, truly grateful for. It made me think about uh, when I moved out of my home uh, and when I went to college, and maybe some of you can relate to this, but when I went to college, I packed my bags, and I, I remember, I can still remember, like, walking through my dorm room, and walking into this brand new kind of life, this experience that would change the direction of my life forever. It was an amazing open door that God had given me. It made me think about how in 1987, Christy and I walked into uh, the front doors, the open doors of a church in Lake Oswego, and we came out husband and wife. What a tremendous blessing that was. On three different occasions, we've walked through the open doors of a hospital and into a birthing room and come out with uh, two sons and a daughter. Another set of just wonderful doors that I've been able to walk through my life was the first time, I remember the first time I walked through the front doors of this church. I had no idea when I did that how profound that would be and what an incredible blessing that would be on my life. And I'm sure that you have walked through many wonderful doors as well. 
Maybe you've had some, some great relationships that have been opened up for you and you've been able to take part in. Maybe you've walked through some, some, uh, some family doors. Maybe you've walked through a couple of educational doors and vocational doors and doors to stuff. A lot of things that have blessed you in life. But when you think about all the different doors that you get to walk through in life, well, what's the foundational door behind all of those doors? And clearly, that would be the door of life itself. We wouldn't be able to walk through any doors in life if we hadn't been given the gift of life. And that's the one door that we have no control over. We couldn't make that happen. It wasn't up to us. Where does that, that open door come from? Well, the Bible tells us in the very first verse, it said, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our life is a gift that was given to us by God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but why? Why did God give us the gift of life? What, what was his whole purpose behind that? Was he lonely? Was he bored? Did he just need someone else to boss around like the angels weren't enough? In fact, it tells us in Ephesians exactly why God created us. Long before the creation of the world, long before you and I were created, long before we were here, it says that he already had us in mind. He had designs on us. He had blueprints for us. Why? Because he had settled on us as the focus of his love. In other words, God was looking for someone else to bless, someone else to, in, in, to give himself to and, and, and to uh, love and to interact with. And that was us. God made us to be loved. And that's the purpose of life. But not only did he make us to be loved, God made us to be love. God wanted us to love him in return. One time a guy came to Jesus and he asked him, you know, what's the main thing in life? If you could just focus on one thing in life and that would be the one thing that you wouldn't want to miss, what would that be? What would be the main thing in life? And Jesus said, the main thing in life is to love the Lord your God. It's to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the most important thing. This is the main thing in life. You got to make sure you make the main thing the main thing. Now some people, if you ask them, what's the main thing in life? They would say religion. You got to figure out what the right religion is and then you got to do whatever they say to do so God will accept you someday. Some people say the main thing in life is just have fun. Just go for it because when life is over, you know, the fun is gone. Some people say it's all about wealth and about toys and about money because that buys happiness. Some people will tell you there is no purpose to life. It's meaningless. You're born, you die, that's it. But Jesus says actually there's a purpose to life and the purpose to life is love. And when we find that, when we find God's love and when we are able to love him in return, it puts everything in perspective. It gives us a reason to celebrate every day of life. And that's why we're here today at Easter. We're here to celebrate life. Let's do that together. So God gives us this this wonderful gift of life. And he, he makes it clear the purpose of life is to love God. But what does that mean, to love God? I, I would say simply it means just to give God his rightful place in our lives. To give God the place he deserves as creator, as, as Lord, as king in our decisions. To give God his rightful place in our affections, in our, in our thoughts, in our actions. So God creates the, the first people. And uh, he puts them in this amazing world full of open doors. God gives them uh, this beautiful world. He gives them each other. He gives them abilities and and purposes and things to fill up their life. But you might remember the story. God also gives them one door that has a do not enter sign, right? He's like, all of these doors, all this limitless stuff you can do, just there's just one door. Do not go through that door. 
God's message is simple. I'm God. I know what's best for you. These are good. This is not good. What do they do? You know, it reminds me of when I was in grade school. My parents must have had this temporary lack of sanity, and they bought me a BB gun for my birthday, which you'd have to know me. That just didn't seem like a wise thing to do. So they bought me a BB gun, and my dad takes me in the background. He's like, now, son, here's the deal with the BB gun. There's two rules. First of all, never use the BB gun when I'm not at home. And secondly, you can only shoot at this target that I've put on this tree. And so, you know, we, we practiced shooting at the tree. And then my, my, what did I do the first day? My dad's gone, and I'm home right? I go over and I get my best friend whose parents also didn't have a lot of sense because he had a BB gun and so both of us came to my house to shoot at the target without my parents there. And we shot at the target for a little while and then we got kind of bored because the target just sits there. It doesn't move. It doesn't, you know. So we started looking around. What could we shoot at? And there was this telephone line in the back with a bunch of like really dumb birds on it. We thought that would be fun. And so we loaded up our BB guns and we began to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And the birds were bored and waiting and shoot and shoot. And we must have shot off a couple hundred BBs. And then finally, we hit one. It was, it was shocking. Brian thought he hit it, but I'm pretty sure it was mine. And the bird fell to the ground. And so we walked up and looked at the bird and it was just dead. And I, you know, I thought, who would have thought a BB gun could kill a sparrow, but it was dead. And I, I kind of felt something inside, this little twinge of like, I felt remorse. I, I felt guilt. I thought, I got to bury this bird because if dad finds it, I'm dead, you know. It won't be the only thing buried in our backyard. And so anyways, I, I, but the thing we never thought about was, I wonder where all those hundreds of BBs that didn't hit the bird went. I wonder where those are. Went out in the front yard to ride up to the school and we found out where all of them went into a great big window of our neighbor's yard. Got in a lot of trouble for that. I took something that was supposed to be good and I misused it and a lot of destruction came from that thing. Adam and Eve are placed on this earth. They are blessed. What do they do with all the blessings of God? They decided to ignore God's directive. That's called sin. They decided, you know what? I'm going to take my God-given life and I'm going to do what I want with it. Think of the irony of that. I'm going to take my God-given life and do what I want with it. I'm going to take my God-given body and I'm going to, I'm going to go through the doors I want to go through. I don't care what God says. I'm going to take my God-given relationships and ability and wealth and I'm going to do what I want. But God was very clear about what would happen if we were to do that, if we were to walk away from him and close the door. The first thing that happened was we experienced spiritual death. In Isaiah 59, the prophet says, your wrongs, your sins, notice have separated from you, you from your God. Now, we still get a chance at life. We still get to go through some open doors, but what we lack is a spiritual relationship with God. We lack intimacy with God. That's why we feel empty without him. Uh, we lack purpose, so we have to come up with our own purpose in life. And we lack the wisdom that we need to live life. A second thing is not only do we have spiritual death, but we experience physical death. In Romans, it says sin pays off, or the wages of sin is death. Because of sin, everyone dies physically. 100% of us. We don't like to talk about it, or think about it, or dwell on it. It also tells us in Romans that all have sinned. Everyone has sinned, and everyone has fallen short of God's glorious standard. But we rationalize. We like to think everyone sinned, I'm not perfect, but I'm not Hitler either. You know what I mean? I mean, I've, I've never walked through the homicide door. I didn't do that. I haven't walked through that, you know, the, uh, the child abuse door or the violence door. I never went through like the cat lover door. I haven't done those things. I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as some people, you know. 
I'm probably better than most people, and so I think God will probably let me into heaven. Here's the problem. Uh, I was reading a book recently called Switch, and in this book, uh, they did a bunch of studies, and here's what they found. We're pretty good at evaluating other people. We're not very good at evaluating ourselves. And so there's some stuff in here that I found really interesting. 79, that's the percentage of American drivers who believe they're in the top 25%. Yeah, 98%. That's the percentage of high school seniors who believe they have above average leadership skills, but probably below average math skills, I'm guessing. 25 is a percentage of people who believe they're in the top 1% in their ability to get along with others. 94% of college professors believe they do above average work when compared to their peers. Here's the best one of all. 95% of Americans believe they are more likely to provide an accurate self-assessment than other people. God comes along. You know, we like to say, I'm not that bad. I haven't sinned that much. I didn't do anything really bad. God says, you know what? Everyone has sinned. And everyone has fallen short of the standard that God has for us. All sin is bad. All sin is hurtful. All sin is destructive. And it cannot be ignored. But here's the great, incredible news of Easter. God decided to take care of the entire problem himself. And that's what Easter is all about. Well, you know, nobody's perfect and we all make mistakes. And one of the, one of the things that we do sometimes is, not that we always mean to, but sometimes we hurt the people we love. And, and uh, I don't know if you've ever said something to someone to hurt them or did something or blew it in some way. And, and uh, the person decided they weren't going to forgive you. Instead, they just decided they're going to shut the door and turn off the open sign and that's it. There's no more relationship there's no more future. Uh, if you've ever had that happen, you know how, how hard that is to deal with. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is one that whether you go to church or not, you probably know it. I love it because it chronicles for us the response that God had to us when we had sinned against Him. What did God do? Did He shut the door on us? Did He reject us? In fact, it tells us this. Let, let's read this together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It says that God's response to us is that he loves us. Now, when we say love today, we don't really think of what it means here. We think of things like attraction and, and, and lust or some kind of fuzzy, warm feeling inside. But when the Bible talks about God's love, it's just talking about a choice. It's just flat-out choice. God goes around and says, I love you. And not based on your merit, not based on my feeling, but based on a commitment that he has to care for us, to bless us, to sacrifice for us. And it's important what it says there. It says, for God so loved, not, not the religious people or the righteous people or anything. It says God so loved the world. And that word there is just a reference to humanity as a whole. God saw us. He saw our sin. And yet he was so completely committed to pursuing us that he did not give up on us. Instead, what it says is that he gave his only son. He created a new door of opportunity for us. The Bible tells us that God decided that before we were even created, and he knew what we would do, it was decided that he would come down to this earth in the form of a man to live among us and to pursue us. Anyone ever seen the show Undercover Boss on TV? 
See that? That's a really cool show. So like CEOs of large corporations go undercover and they work with the common folk, you know. And I saw one a couple of weeks ago where that CEO of waste management, anyone see that? So this guy, he's the CEO of this huge corporation. And he goes down, he's like scrubbing outhouses with this guy. who he, The guy he's working for doesn't know that this guy is actually his boss. So it's kind of cool. And that he's scrubbing toilets. And, and this worker that's overseeing him is like, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know. This guy might have a future in this. He's pretty good at cleaning toilets, you know, and he's driving down, driving a, a, a trash truck and collecting trash. And that's not really, though, what Jesus did when he came down here 2,000 years ago. He didn't come to, to find out what it's like to be us, and he didn't even come down here to kind of help us out or to share our burden. Jesus came down here to take our burden, to completely take the burden upon himself. So he came down, and he took on a body like ours. He, he, he made this body he designed this body. He took one. He lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago when it was kind of rough to be a Jew because they were living under Roman rule. We're told that Jesus, uh, as he was growing up, he was a carpenter by trade and also a Jewish rabbi. At about the age of 30, he put down the, the carpentry tools and he just began to full-time travel around the countryside and minister to people. So he would go and he, he would hang out with the irreligious people and the sinners and uh, he would share God with them. These people had been told that, that to have a relationship with God, it was all about religion and it was all about rules and it was all about ritual. And Jesus starts going around going, that is not what God is about. God is about having a relationship with you where you you put him first in your life. And so Jesus begins to teach truth about God and life and eternity and how to live. He begins to minister to people. He heals people. He feeds people. He's just loving people with the love of God. It's kind of interesting when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you see is this pattern, that the irreligious people, that, that the sinners were drawn to him by the hundreds, the thousands, even the tens of thousands were attracted to Jesus, but the religious leaders, not so much. They, they resented him because they had this kind of chokehold on common people. And Jesus comes along and he says, you know all those rules? You don't have to follow those. You can be set free in God. He says religion and in the fear of God, you don't need to live in that. So Jesus begins to minister to people, and for three years, day after day after day, he's just giving of himself moment by moment. Finally, after three years, he gathers his disciples in this room. We, we think of it as the upper room. And he's going to give them this briefing because they, they did not understand up to this point that Jesus came to die for our sin. This was the thing he still had to do, to go to the cross. And they weren't getting this, so he sits them down and he begins to tell them, sin is so serious that, that, that blood has to be shed for it. And Jesus explains that he's going to do it in our place. So he's in this room with his men and he takes a, a loaf of bread and he begins to break it and pass it around. And he says, in the future when you take bread, remember my body, he says, that was broken for you. And he passes around a cup with wine and as they drink out of it, he says, in the future you can think of my blood that was shed for you on the cross that I'm about to go to. Now, the religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus. I mean, they wanted to shut him down. They wanted to put him to death. But his ministry was so popular, they just couldn't arrest him in the middle of the day. So they paid off one of his disciples, who was willing to be an informant, a betrayer, to tell them when Jesus was alone. And so, after the, the Last Supper, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's praying. Judas goes and tells the religious leaders and they see their opportunity to get rid of Jesus. So they bring some soldiers to that garden and they arrest Jesus. 
and they take him to their place of meeting and they put him on a mock trial and they find him guilty of blasphemy. That is, he claimed to be God, which in fact, he was. They wanted to put him to death, but they couldn't because being under Roman rule, they didn't have that kind of authority. So they take Jesus to Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time, and they said, this man has broken our law. We want, him to put, we want to put him to death. And Pilate spent some time with him and walked out and said, I don't find this man guilty of death. And so the religious leader said, well, you know what? He claims to be a king, and that's against the Roman law because only Caesar is king. And uh, if you don't crucify him, we're going to riot. So Pilate gives in in what was basically a political move, and he decides to go ahead and let Jesus be crucified, to just kind of get rid of him. Now, the Romans had perfected crucifixion by this point. We know from history books that they had crucified tens of thousands of people. Now, usually it was reserved for murderers and violent criminals and political enemies, They would begin by taking the person in in a public square. They would strip them down to humiliate them. They would tie them to a post and they would whip them with a whip that would have pieces of glass and and metal in it. And they would whip this person until they were close to death. And then they would take and make them carry a cross to a place nearby where they would be crucified. When they got to that place, they would put the cross on the ground. They would lay the person on the cross and they would drive nails through their wrists and through their feet. Tens of thousands of people had met this fate. Then they would often put a sign on the top. This man was a murderer. This man was an enemy of the state. On Jesus, they put, this man claimed to be king of the Jews. They put a sign up there because they just wanted common citizens to know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. They put the cross in the ground, and there Jesus hangs suffering an agonizing death. Most of the time you would hang there until we're told that you would suffocate to death. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. The Sabbath was coming at sundown and the Jews wanted to prepare his body for burial. They didn't have enough time. So they asked permission to take his body down. And they wrapped it in kind of a temporary uh, some, some spices and some material just kind of temporarily and they put them in a tomb nearby. And their, their plan was to come back on Sunday after the Sabbath and to finish the job and to permanently put him in a tomb. The religious re- leaders remember that Jesus said that after he was killed, he would rise on the third day. And so they put a large stone in front of the tomb and they put a guard there to make sure that no one came and stole the body. Why did Jesus do that though? Why did he stay on that cross? Why did he allow himself to be humiliated like that? Why did he suffer and die for people who are rejecting him? In fact, the reason that that Jesus was willing to do all this, he made very clear years earlier, he told a story. It was a story about a father that had two sons. You might remember this story. And one day, one of the sons, the younger of the sons, came to his father and said, you know what, father, I want my share of the inheritance now. Now you have to understand, that was just a a, a terribly insulting thing for a child to say. I mean, you got the inheritance when the parents were gone. So for this son to come and say, I want my inheritance while you're still alive, it was kind of his way of saying, you know what, Dad, we don't really have a relationship, and, and quite frankly, I want your money more than I want a relationship with you, so why don't you just give me my money, and I'll go my way, and you'll go your way, and we'll all be happy. And the father, whose, whose heart was obviously crushed, agreed. And he gave his son his share of the inheritance, and the son left. 
And he really began to live it up. Moved to another city, bought a big house, bought some nice wheels, got some nice clothes, throwing big parties every night, lots and lots of friends. You know, he was the, the, he was the center of town. He was the life of the party. And after a while, it says that he ran out of money. And as he ran out of money, he ran out of stuff. And as he ran out of stuff, he ran out of friends. Until one day, he's got nothing left. Nothing, he's lost it all. He goes and he hires himself out to a nearby farmer and his job is to feed pigs in the field. And one day he realizes these pigs are eating better than he is. And he, kind of, he has an idea. He says, you know what? My father's workers live better than this. So I'll go to my father and I'll say, you know what, father, I've sinned against you and I don't deserve to be your son anymore. But if you would just hire me as a slave, that, that, that would be enough for me. So he decides to go through with the plan. So he leaves his job and he's traveling back to his father. He doesn't know if his father will accept him or reject him because he's really hurt his father. The story goes on and it says as he's getting near to his father's house, his father maybe was out on the front porch looking out and he sees his son who hurt him, who rejected him, who took half of all he had and went away and wasted all. He sees that son coming towards him. And what does that father do? He begins to run. He begins to run towards that son. And as he gets near the son, the son has the whole speech figured out and he falls on his knees and he just begins to confess, I'm not worthy to be your son, but if you would just hire me as a slave. And his father reaches down and he pulls up his son and he wraps his arm around him and it says that he kisses his son and he says, no way am I hiring you. You're my son and I love you. And he puts the ring of the family back on his son and he puts a robe around him and he brings him home and he says, we're having a party because this son of mine has come home. And people are like, are you nuts? Don't you remember what he did to you, what he said to you, what he took from you? And the father says, you don't understand. This son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Why did Jesus tell us that story? Because he wanted us to know how God the Father feels about us. Regardless of what we've done, what we've said, how we've sinned. The Bible says that when we come to our Father, he greets us with open arms. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus stayed on the cross. It was a Friday. Jesus was in the tomb. Back in the 1970s, there was a pastor in Philadelphia who preached a sermon. It was over an hour long, but three and a half minutes of that sermon have become infamous. And uh, I wanted to, I was going to read it for you, but I decided I found a recording of uh, him doing it himself, and he did it so good, I thought, I'll just kind of play this for you, and there's a little video in the background. But I want you to hear part of this sermon, because it just tells the story so beautifully. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like Sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sundays are coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scar. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sundays come. It's Friday. 
see Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit's burden. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nailed my Savior's hands to the cross. They nailed my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raised him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross. Feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the earth trembles, the sky grows dark, my king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday. Sunday is a coming. When I grow up, I'm going to preach like that. You know, even though Jesus was, was, was perfectly clear with the disciples that he would go to the cross and die, they, they still didn't get it. They still couldn't believe it. And when they buried him in that tomb, they felt like they buried all of their hope for the future with him. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, like all your hope is gone. But here are the disciples, and they believe it's all gone. They, they believe the whole plan went wrong. It's Sunday morning. Several of Jesus' uh, followers' women had come back to the tomb to finish preparing his body. But it says that when they arrived, they looked up and, and they saw that the stone, a very large one, it was covering the tomb, had already been rolled aside, so they entered the tomb, and there on the right sat a young man clothed in a white robe, and the women were startled. But the angel said to them, do not be so surprised, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, but he isn't here. He's been raised from the dead. And over the next 40 days, Jesus appears to over 500 people. He appears to them, he talks with them, he eats with them, he lets them touch his wounds in his side. And the disciples are transformed from ordinary people into people who literally changed history. Where did that come from? How did these fishermen and ordinary people become people who changed the world? 
How did that happen? Because the power of the open tomb proved some things to them back then that it still proves to us today some transforming truths. The first one is this, because of the open tomb, it proves that we can believe the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus said some pretty astonishing things about God, about salvation, about the purpose of life. And he also said some pretty astonishing things about himself. The open tomb proves that we can believe those things. Jesus said things like, I and the Father are one. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will be saved. He said things like, if you live by my words, you will live like a wise person. The disciples realized when Jesus rose from the dead, they could base their life and their actions and their decisions on his words. There's a second thing that it proved for them back then and for us today. It proves that we can be right with God. There is a way to have a right relationship with God because Jesus traded places with us on the cross we can be restored to a right relationship. In 2 Corinthians, it tells us this, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. He traded places with us so that we could be made right with God through Christ. His death and his resurrection can set us free from the guilt of our sin. It can set us free from the fear of death. It can set us free from the expectations of others so now we're free to live for God. It can set us free from stress and worry and from trying to earn God's approval. It set those disciples free to change the world and it still sets people free today. It also proves that we can have a new life. It tells us this in 1 Peter because Jesus was raised from the dead. We've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for including a future in heaven and that future starts now. It says that we can have a brand new life. Jesus isn't just something you add to your own old life to make it a, a little bit better. It's a brand new life. It's a start over kind of life. It tells us in 2 Corinthians what that life looks like. It says Jesus died for everyone so that those who received this new life, notice this, will no longer live for themselves. Some people read that and go, that sounds like bondage. I don't get to live for me anymore. In fact, what he says is that's when you're truly set free, when you don't have to live for yourself anymore. But now you can live for him who died for us and who was raised again. You'll never be happy living for yourself. I can give you hundreds of examples of people who were focused on themselves, but it never brought them lasting happiness. Instead, we were made to live for God. And when you begin to live for God, that's when you discover real happiness, meaning, and satisfaction. It set the disciples free. It still sets people free today. And the fourth thing is this. It proves that we can have eternal life. If you've ever thought there has to be more to life than this life, there has to be more than just being born and living and dying and that's it, the end of existence. In fact, the Bible says there is more to life. And in 1 Corinthians, it tells us this. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? How we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. It looks like death is the end, but he says, it's not the end. It's only the beginning of the best part of your existence. The question isn't, will I die? The question is, will death be the end of me or will it be the beginning of the best part of my existence? The open tomb of Christ proves to us that that which raised Jesus from the dead is still available to us today to change our very lives. And that is the essence. It's the good news of what Easter is all about.
You know, we're blessed people. The fact that we're even here today talking about this is because God has bestowed upon every one of us the gift of life. He opened that door for us, and that is, that's the foundational door we went through that allows us to experience all the great things that we experience in life. But Jesus Christ was very clear that there's one essential door that's more important for us once we have this life than any other door that we'll ever have the opportunity to open. In the book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, it says this, Jesus is talking and he says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and and he with me. Jesus is talking about the fact that he's standing at the door of our life. The God who thought of you, the God who planned you, the God who created you and gave you life, the God who pursued you, who came down to this earth for you, the God who rose for you, and he's at the door and he's knocking for you. And it's his way of saying, I've done everything that I can do, I can't do anymore. The next step has to be yours, to open up that door, the door of your heart, the door of your life and to invite Jesus to come in. He gives us this picture of eating a meal together. Back then, and 2,000 years ago, that was the picture of intimacy and doing life together, to eat meals together. Jesus says the next move is yours. I would love to come in and be your savior, be your king. How do we do that? How do we open that door? Is it done through certain rituals or, or a certain religion? In fact, that's not how you get there at all. You open the door, through faith. In John 1, 12, it says this, to everyone who believed him. And that, that word, when you see that word believed, it just means to, to have faith or to trust in Christ. To all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God, to be right with God. That, that term believe, that is the, the operative word here that opens the door and lets Jesus in to our life. It doesn't mean that we understand it all. It doesn't mean that we have all the answers and we figured it out, but it means that we're willing to open the door and to trust Jesus with our life, to put our life in his hands, to become a Christ follower. And when you do that, when, when you place your faith in Christ, it says that we receive something very interesting. In Ephesians, it says this, it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, he says, when we place our faith in Christ, God gives us a gift. It's important to understand what he's saying here. He's not saying God did some of the work and then you do some of the work. He's saying that, that's not what happens here. God did all of the work and then you just accept the gift. That's not work. That's just accepting the free gift of grace. That word grace in the Greek literally means unmerited favor or, or free gift. It means God did all the work. God purchased it. God planned it. God paid for it. God offers it to you. Notice what he says, it's not a reward for the good things that we've done. Religion can be summarized in in one word, two letters, the word do. Religion says if you do these things, then you will be acceptable to God. If you pray this way, if you do these rituals, if you keep this list of rules, if you try really hard, then God will probably be happy with you and let you into heaven. But Christianity, summarized by the word done. It's all about what Christ has done for us, completed for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. All you do is accept the free gift of God. That's why we exist as a church, to let people know about that gift. And I believe that God has brought every one of us here today, not by accident, but by design, because he's offering a gift to us. If you've never received that gift of of grace, of salvation, 
I want to give you the opportunity to do that. The best way to do that is just to begin by talking to God. Just to say, you know what, God, I don't understand it all. I don't have it all figured out. But I want to thank you for life. And I want to live forever. I want to follow your son. And you just talk to God and you just accept that gift. That's how the following begins. If you're here today and and this is all pretty new to you and you're still trying to figure it out, I want to encourage you to begin to investigate the claims of Christ. Sometimes a lot of people come up to me after Easter or Christmas and say, you know, I'm just trying to figure this all thing out. I, I have some really big questions. Here's what you need to know. God is not afraid of your questions. He wants you to ask those questions. You can ask us, maybe the person who brought you here today, but we want you to investigate. Here's what you don't want to do. I don't want to see you a year from now and go, hey, you know, how are those questions going? And say, oh, I never really got around to that. You need to investigate the claims of Christ. And, and we want to help you. In fact, we have some, some resources. We've got some books. You should go out today. And if you're just investigating, we've got a book called Cross-Examination. It's free. You can just pick it up. But read it and look at the claims of Christ and think about what he said. We've got some Bibles out there. If, you've, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some other books. If, if you'd like to follow Christ or if you'd like to investigate more, these are there for you. They're free. Don't be shy. Go ahead and take them. And uh, if you want someone to talk to, the staff is here to talk to you about Christ. We're here to help you take your next step in following Christ. But right now as we close the service, I want to pray for you. Thank you.